uh, we will be able to continue to worship the Lord together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have invited us into a relationship with you, a relationship where we are able to know our creator, we are able to be known by our creator, we're able to respond to our creator. And Lord, we do that now. In the midst of all the various things going on in our lives, we give you our attention, we turn toward you, that we might remember who is the the grounding, the foundation, the source of our life. Lord, our worship of you is not uh, an afterthought. It's not, it, it's not by chance that we've gathered here. It's not by chance that we've chosen to join online. We're here because we love you, because you've created us, and you give us a relationship to walk with you in through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for that grace. Thank you for your love. We worship you and praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. As we're going to sing together, one of the things that I love about winter is when the snow comes, how it just covers everything with the white. And I think how incredible it is that God has done that for me. That for a God who is so holy, so beyond me, that he has covered my sins because of Jesus. And that though my sins be as scarlet, yet they are white as snow because of Jesus. So this morning as we sing, we're going to explore the gap between those two things. We're going to start with Great Are You, Lord, and thinking about it's his breath that's in our lungs. Um, I don't know if you heard the group uh, Sixpence, None the Richer. I was used to, and I was like, why would you name a group that? And then it talked about how like as kids are little and you would give them money to go buy the other parent a Christmas gift. So like really, it's not like you were given a gift. It's like that you were just giving back what you were given. That's what we're here to do this morning is just recognize God in his supremeness and be grateful to him for all he has given us. Please stand and join with us in singing. Give life, you are love, you bring life. 
shout your praise our hearts will cry these bones will sing between God and us. Let's pray a prayer of confession together. The words will be on screen. Please read with us. Eternal and merciful God, you have loved us with a love beyond our understanding. And you have set us on paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Yet we have strayed from your way. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, through what we have done and what we have left undone. As we remember the lavish gift of your grace, we praise you and give you thanks that you forgive us yet again. Grant us now, we pray, the grace to die daily to sin and to rise daily to new life in Christ, who lives and reigns with you, and in whose strong name we pray. Amen. In his boundless love and mercy 
seated. Children, you may be dismissed. Good morning, everyone. This morning, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, so feel free to turn to that as you do. But before we spend time in the Gospel of Matthew, we have a a moment here to kind of celebrate a a number of birthdays, which I don't normally do this, but I just felt like, hey, we hit like like four birthdays in a matter of a couple days that I just want to give voice to. So uh, I know Skip Garuffalo, Nina Garuffalo, well, actually, Nina Kamarji now, sorry, uh, I know that this morning we want to remember our very own Janet Kramka, who uh, does so much to help us with uh, messages and communication online and the website and, and whatnot, and, and certainly uh, Millie Landock, who is in Honduras right now celebrating with her family, but uh, her birthday was this week. So, you know, the scripture tells us that we uh, rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. And, uh, and oftentimes we use that passage when we're kind of dealing with the hard things that we're standing alongside one another, and it's absolutely true then. But it's also a reminder that we get to rejoice with one another in these moments where we get to reflect on God's faithfulness to us in our lives, in our midst, in our year. And so uh, we certainly, we do that. We celebrate with those families uh, and for any of you who might be celebrating a birthday uh, this week. This morning, we're going to continue in our series on the heart of worship. And if you were with us last week, uh, Robert Russell did an excellent job kicking us off into this series on this idea of, uh, of worship and a lifestyle of worship. God invites us to love him with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our strength, all of our soul. It's not defined, worship is not defined by a particular music style or a particular tradition. Within the evangelical tradition, we have a diverse conglomeration of traditions and styles that we kind of, that make us up. But worshiping Jesus is the one thing that we all absolutely share in common, right? Worship is something more robust it's more robust than how we feel coming away from Sunday morning. It, it should be deeper and wider than the, the songs we sing on Sunday morning or, or the traditions we follow. See, at the heart of the matter, at the heart of this issue of worship, is what is the object of our desires. So what is the heart of our worship? Is worship about the self? Is it about how I feel or, or how we feel? Is it about what we like or, or maybe what I personally like? Is it about how comfortable we are? Is it the fact that we've got heat on, it's not too cold in here, or it's not too hot in here, or, or whatever it might be? Or, or is God at the, the heart of our worship? Is he the reason we gather? Is he the, the purpose for our gathering together as a people? You, you've probably heard someone say that you are what you eat. And I had to look up that saying because I've used it so many times, but I kind of forgotten what it means. But, but, it, but it means you can't expect to become healthy if all you eat is unhealthy foods. Or you can't expect to become 
Yeah, let's just go with that, that direction. I'd rather stay there. You can't become healthy if all you eat is unhealthy foods, right? If all you eat is, is fatty, greasy foods, your body's going to reflect it. In the same way, we become what we worship, what, what we set as our most desired focus, what our soul takes in and, and with the appetite of our soul, what we value most from the core of our being. This is what will shape our lives physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally. So the heart of worship is a life with Jesus at its core. I should say this, the, the, the Christian heart of worship is a life with Jesus at its core. It's a life that's conformed to his image because God is what we value most. Right? The reason why I clarified that a Christian life of worship is, is a life with Jesus at his core is because we all live lives of worship. You are living a life of worship right now. The question is, what is it that you worship? I don't know that many of us slow down to really dig deep and ask those questions of what is it that I worship, but we all worship someone or something. The Christian life of worship puts Jesus at its core. This past year, leaders in our church have been learning to pray and, and think about where God is leading us to go ahead, how to, how to be a church that, that seeks to see the love of Jesus overwhelm and transform the families of our community. And one of those teams was, was charged with focusing in on, on the worship of our church, the, the worship ministry of our community. And they gathered and, 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 and strived to kind of wrestle at this idea of, well, if we're to be a worshiping community, what do we understand to be worship? What, what do we use to guide our thinking and praying and decision-making about what it looks like to have a healthy community of worship here at Trinity? And what they came to, I love, they, they kind of brought together a few different streams of definitions to kind of settle on what do they feel confident represents what our community of faith understands to be a heart of worship. They said worship is our response, both personal and corporate, so both individually and as a community, to God. It's our response to God for who he is and what he has done. And it's expressed in and by the things that we say and the way we live our lives. So in a nutshell, it's saying worship is our whole life response to God's greatness and his glory, right? Our entire lives are a reflection of God and his character. It's to say that God has spoken. God has revealed himself to us. That's what we have in the Bible. It's a record. It's a, it's a, it's a life, a living document that, that gives voice to who God is. He's spoken himself into existence through history, recorded in the scriptures. And we have this way of God has, has kind of, he sent forth this word revealing who he is. And we, as his creation, we, we become these, these like, uh, uh, I don't know if this is actually how um, the, those things work, where uh, satellites work, but, but it's like we, we, we ricochet the message right back to him, right? As that message hits home in our hearts, it conforms us, it changes us, it transforms us, and it returns back to God. The very same image he sent forth comes back to him. That's what a life of worship is. And so this morning, I want us all to walk away from our time in God's word in the Gospel of Matthew with the understanding that the heart of worship is living a life 
on purpose. Last week, the the worship team introduced the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a tool that the church has used throughout history to help train up the church in knowing what is it we believe? Who are we? Like, as we live out our faith in the world, what does it mean to to be a Christian? What do Christians practically and and theologically believe? And, And so this first question of the faith asks, what is our only comfort? What's our only hope in life and in death? What's the only thing we can confidently cling to in life and in death? And the answer is that we are not our own, but we belong to God, both body and soul, in life and death, uh, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So our purpose is not our purpose. Our purpose is God's purpose, the purpose that he created us for. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 14, verses 7 to 8. He says, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. You belong to God. We belong to God. Our purpose in this world is given to us by God. It's not one where we have to to seek to to figure out on our own what our purpose is. It's not saying, hey, who am I? It's saying, God, who have you created me to be? The scriptures teach that each of us is fearfully and wonderfully made by God. He created us. He's given us a purpose. The scriptures say that we are his workmanship. We're created in Christ for good works. You know, the razor, for those of you who who have hair, was invented to cut hair, right? The wheel was invented to improve transportation. Followers of Christ are created for God's purposes and for good works. So when our lives align with this purpose, when our lives align with God's design for our lives, well, then we're in line, we're, we're living this life of worship. We're in line with the heart of worship. And so living our lives on God's purpose is an act of adoring God for who he is. It's acknowledging that he's our creator, we're the creation, and we adore the creator in being who he's created us to be. The heart of worship is a life lived on purpose, and specifically God's purpose. So what's your purpose? Well, guess what? I can't tell you. Right? Like I, I, can't, I can't tell you what your purpose is, but I can tell you what a life lived for God's purpose will look like. So turn to Matthew chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, I'll read it for us from Matthew chapter 5. It'll be on the screen. You could pull it up on your phone if you have the Bible app on your phone, or you could go through uh, Trinity's app, and, and we have a little uh, resource you can, you can tap into the Scripture passage through there as well on Sunday morning resources, or Sunday a.m. resources, sorry. But let me read for us from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. Jesus says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, 
Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for for, for revealing yourself, for not leaving your creation in the dark, but sending yourself, your light, your, your revelation into this world that we might know you, that we might learn to trust you, that we might be a, a, a person, a people that reflect your glory back to you, that others might see and know who their Father in heaven is and how deeply he loves them. So Father, help us to spend time in your word. Give us wisdom and clarity as to understand what you are saying, not what Pastor Dan is saying, but what you are saying in this passage this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, where we find ourselves here in Matthew chapter 5 is in a passage called the Sermon on the Mount. It's probably one of the more famous passages of the Bible. Uh, it's one that our, 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 our culture, our world has taken hold of because it's got some great moral teachings involved in it. But, but more importantly to that is understanding how Jesus uses this time, the, the sermon, uh, to, to communicate with his disciples. See, after Jesus had first called his 12 disciples together, he, 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 we're told he, he leaves the Sea of Galilee and, and, and gathers his disciples on the hillside, and he sits down to teach them. And, and as you're picturing this scene, I, I want to encourage you to think about a, a crowd of people that kind of gathered with them and, and kind of were standing back and listening, just paying attention, kind of leaning in, as we're doing today, leaning in and listening and overhearing this conversation that Jesus is happening with his 12 disciples that he's just called to ministry. And here's the thing. In those days, when a rabbi sat down with his students, when he sat down to teach them something, it was a very important moment. When he, the posture of him sitting down and them sitting around him was the posture of a rabbi instructing his disciples. And more important to that is the fact that this is the first formal teaching that Jesus gives in the Gospel of Matthew. And I think it's important for us to note because... When, when, when you see this first message declared, when you see this first teaching declared, it, it should tell us something to pay attention to, right? We know that here in, in the Gospel of Matthew, here in the, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins to preach and teach about the kingdom of God, about what it means to be a citizen in the kingdom of God. Our world sees this as being a passage that, you know, I should say, people who don't necessarily acknowledge Jesus as Savior and Lord could still acknowledge this passage as teaching us some very good, positive, moral teachings. But, but it's more than that. It's deeper than that. It's more important for us to grasp and, and grab hold of because it's not just about the, the, the actions we take, about what kind of moral people we look like on the outside. Jesus is saying, as a citizen of the kingdom of God, this is who you're going to be transformed into, right? To live as followers of Jesus in our world is not to just act differently, but it's to, to live in a distinctly different way from the world around us. We're going to stand out. We're, we're supposed to stand out. And God is the one who will transform us and make us that way. It's by his design. If you look back in the, the verses leading up to our passage, it's the Beatitudes, right? Jesus talks about humility and meekness, merciful pure in heart, longing for God's justice and righteousness. And you know what? These are all virtues. 
They're not a sign of, uh, of weakness. What the world should experience when a, a follower of Jesus crosses paths or crosses their path is that they should meet a peacemaker. They should meet someone who's compassionate and merciful, selfless and caring. They should meet someone who, who's gracious, someone who's marching by the beat of God's righteousness and justice found in Jesus. I'm not, I'm not talking about pretending to be better than we are. I'm not talking about us earning our righteousness by doing good deeds. That's not what, what Jesus is talking about here. He's actually talking about our identity as citizens of the kingdom of God. We're talking about making Jesus such a central focus in your lives that we become more like Jesus. Jesus, who is humble, who is meek, who is merciful and pure in heart, who's righteous and just. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to take a proud papa moment for a second here. Uh, this past week, or a couple weeks actually, maybe it was two weeks ago now, my, one of my sons was having uh, some difficulty with a kid at school who was being unkind to him. Right? He was saying some particularly hurtful words. And, and, and my, my son turns to him and he says, hey, you know what, you're just jealous because I have a kind heart. I'm like, booyah, yeah, get him, right? That's the best comeback you can give him, right? I, you, know, you're, you, you know what, my heart's different than yours. I don't need to engage with you. You're just jealous. You're jealous because I have a kind heart. I was so proud of him. But that's, that's what it is. We don't engage with these fights and these arguments that rip and tear one another down. We say, hey, we're going to be different than the world around us. And, and not because we're good at it, but because we have the Spirit of God at work in us who's transforming us to be a citizen of God. So when we live a life of worship, our lives stand out. We're spicy. We're salty, right? Now, for those of you who like to put seasoning on your meals, how do you season your food? Do you just grab a, a fistful of salt and, and just chuck it on the, on the food? I don't think so. I think you, you, you shake it out in such a way that, that the salt spreads out. It's not concentrated in one little spot. So it is with God's purpose for his church. God intends us to be a salt that he sends out, that, that, that he sprinkles on the earth so as to season the earth with the character and the love of God. Now, in the Ancient Near East salt had a, a, a few purposes. It was used to preserve food. You know, like uh, we have beef jerky. We have machines that do that now. But, but back in those days, before they had refrigerators and things like that, they had, they had ways where they needed to preserve their catch. They had to preserve their food. They used salt to do that. It was also used to season food, right? To, to give it, to add to its flavor, to give it a little extra kick. And it was used to purify things. Salt Salt even uh, was an image that, that, they, that was used in the Old Testament to describe this unending covenant of God with his people. It, it depicted God's intention to preserve his people so they would, not, they would not decay, they would not go bad, they would not rot, but he would preserve them and reserve, preserve a, a permanent relationship with them. So as God's salt of the earth, he sprinkles us on the earth to preserve people for life in Christ and to season this world with the character of God. Our worship of God is our saltiness out there on the earth. Paul says in Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. 
If we are what we worship and we are what we eat, then when we feast on the character of God, when we soak up his love, when we marinate in the truth of God's word, well, then what should come out of us should reflect the character of God. Our speech will be gracious. And this doesn't happen, by the way, because we, we read 15 chapters, and so we should be more gracious now. This is not one of those moments where we can force God's hand to, that, that, that we can force our ability to be a more gracious and loving and kind people. This is when we continuously trust in God by, by putting ourselves in the marinade, by, by allowing his salt to, to, to sink into our lives, by putting us in that proximity to God and letting him do that work of transformation in us. Our speech will be gracious, kind, and loving. And here's the thing. If it's not, then, then ask yourself, graciously ask yourself, what is at the core of my desire? What's the object of my worship? What's the heart of the matter for me? What's driving my life? If what's driving my life is leading me to be more bitter and angry and, 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 and untrusting or, 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 or combative or, or more selfish or, or, or more insecure and anxious, what is it that, that's at the heart of my worship? Is it truly God? Or maybe it's myself. Trust me, this is a a question we don't answer once and we're good. I I found myself having to ask that question or ask that of myself time and time again, day after day, realizing that that, that, the temptations seep into my life, in my world. And there's always the risk that, 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 not a risk, there's always a need for me to declare that Jesus is the object of my worship. The songs we sing on Sunday morning remind us of this. They help us. They, they build that habit in our hearts. The prayers we pray, whether individually as someone leads us in prayer, when we pray them corporately like we did this morning, they, they help remind us of what is most precious to us. So it's good to ask that question about what's shaping and driving your speech and your interactions with others. The truth is, church, our world needs salty Christians. Now, by that, I don't mean people who swear like sailors or, 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 or have been weathered and worn down by life. That's not what I'm referring to. You know, us, us young people today, we use a, the word salty in a different way, much like you older people used to use hip and jive back in the day, right? In, in our day, someone who is salty is someone who's bitter, someone who's angry. Someone, someone who's, who's uh, kind of making life difficult for us around them because of what's going on inside of them, right? That bitterness doesn't stay here. It, it expands out and impacts the relationships of the people around them. This is not the kind of salty Christian that our world needs. And it's not the kind of saltiness that Jesus is referring to here in our passage, Our world needs people who add the flavor of God's grace and love to the world around us. Our our world needs a a people that exhibit the the character of God from the very core of our being, a a people who are humble. That's that's one I keep coming back to a lot, actually, lately. People who are humble. People who are willing to acknowledge our own 
shortcomings, our own failures, our own mistakes. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the one who needs to be reminded of humility. We are a people that that need to exhibit the character of God, that that humility, the graciousness, uh, the forgiveness of being servant-hearted. See, a follower of Jesus who isn't becoming more like Jesus is like salt that's lost its flavor. I mean, have you ever, have you ever seen salt that I haven't? I, don't, I mean, I, maybe it's out there, but, but what's the purpose of salt without flavor? It's worthless. It's meaningless. It's without purpose, right? Being a follower of Jesus requires more than just saying you're a Christian, because if you're just saying you're a Christian, you're not really a follower of Jesus. I think in our day and age, there's less and less people who, are, who, who desire to, to, to claim the title of Christian. And that's a good thing. Because just claim, laying hold claim to the title of Christian was never what Jesus intended for his disciples. Being a follower of Jesus invites us to, to be transformed by Jesus. It means that you're engaged in this process of transformation, and it's a process that God brings, brings you through and brings out, and that through that process brings out your saltiness. So what flavor are you? If you were to ask yourself this morning, are, are, you, are you salty or are you sour? Has the character of God so seasoned your life that, that others experience Jesus through you? You want to live a life of worship? Then be who you were created to be. Be salt. Be the flavor of God to a world that so badly needs God's seasoning. Our seasoning is our distinctiveness from the world around us. Our distinctiveness is not how, you know, our title or how morally good we appear. Our distinctiveness is the character of God that flows out of us. When we love sacrificially, we're salty. When we live by the principle that the first shall be last and the last shall be first, we're salty. When we serve humbly and selflessly and willingly, we're salty. Church, don't be salt that's lost its saltiness. I'm not saying you have to be perfect. I'm not saying you have to be more, try harder to be more obedient. I'm saying be a salty Christian. Be open to God working in your heart, pressing in on your weakness, strengthening you up, graciously forgiving you, guiding you day by day, moment by moment by faith. Be that kind of Christian. Don't be out of touch with your purpose in Christ. Don't, don't blend in with the world around you. Don't try to, to kind of like just assimilate into our culture. You're supposed to be distinctive. It's okay. You're not doing things wrong if you look different from the world around you. There's a second image in our passage that Jesus uses to illustrate what a life of worship looks like. He uses light. Matthew 5, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says this. He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. See, light helps us find our way in the darkness, doesn't it? That makes sense. It helps us avoid stepping on toys or Legos or, 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 or tripping over an end table or something like that. A light can be 
helpful to us. But, but this Jesus using this illustration is a little bit confusing too, right? For those of, us, for those of you who have who've been reading uh, maybe in the Gospel of John or, or elsewhere, isn't it supposed to be Jesus who's the light of the world? Isn't it Jesus who sheds light on what is right and good and true, on who disperses the darkness and evil of this world? Yeah, that's, that's what the Gospel of John teaches us. It, it tells us that, that Jesus is the light of the world, and that whoever follows him will not walk in the darkness of this world, but will have the light of life. And that's just it. That's just it. As followers of Jesus, we have the light of life in us. That's why we can be the light of the world. A life of worship is a life where that light shines forth from your light, your life. Jesus has poured his life and his light into us. And we're not just this box that you then like put the lid on and kind of keep it hidden. We become like a projection screen where he shines his light into us and we reflect it out into the world, right? And so a life of worship is a life where that light shines forth from your life. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect. It doesn't mean you have to have perfect behavior or, or it doesn't mean that you're holier than those around you. It means that the life and the light of Jesus is visible in your life. Coming out of your life. That's what people experience. They don't experience you uh, trying to appear more holy than you are. They experience God's grace and forgiveness and patience and mercy and compassion. Because you have the light of life in you. So I think this is God's purpose for us from the very beginning. He, he tells his people in Isaiah chapter 42... I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison for those, from the prison those who sit in darkness. See, we're created to open the eyes of the blind, to show them the light and the love of God. We're created to be a people that rescue those who are found in the, the prison of their soul and the, the darkness of the world that they've lived in. We're, we're, we're created to be God's light for the nations in this darkened world. So church, let's let the light shine. Let, let's, let, sh, let, let's shine the light of all that is good and right and true that comes to us from God. Verse 16, Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, in the same way that a city on a hill that's lit up can't be hidden, so our lives in Christ cannot be hidden. If you've ever gone to visit someplace that's rather remote, and you're, you're looking in the distance at a city on the hill, those lives that are individually lit up, when they come together, they shine brighter because of their shared shining power, right? There is, there, there is something to be said for us shining our lives together as a community of faith. In John chapter 13, verse 35, 
Jesus tells his disciples that the world will know that we are his disciples by our love for each other. Our light is not just meant to go out into the world. The light of Christ is meant to shine into the lives of one another. And, and, and church, I want us to hear this because if we want to be a church that allows, that, that seeks to see the love of Jesus overwhelm and transform the families of our community, it's not just going to be because of the message we tell people out there on Facebook or, or, or in, in our community. It's also going to happen because we learn how to be the people of God in community here. We need to learn to love one another. And in so doing, in being a community that's centered on, the, God, on the, the love of God, our worship of God becomes visible to our community. It becomes visible to our world. God, Jesus doesn't say that, that, that his disciples will be known by how good a job they do telling others about what they believe or defending what they believe. He says the world will know we are disciples of Jesus by an outward expression of love toward one another. See, it's our actions that give us away. You may be able to tell me that you love God all that you want, but your actions give it away. Your actions tell us what you really love, right? Christianity is not meant to be some personal private religion. It can't be lived out in isolation where no one else can see or hear the impact of Jesus on your life. Our purpose is not to get others to emulate our way of life or, 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 or uh, imitate um, what it looks like to be a good Christian. Our, our purpose is learning to love one another in community. Because guess what? When you love Jesus, it makes a sound. If a tree falls in the woods, it makes a noise. I don't know if you knew that, but it does. And if a person gives their life to Jesus, their life makes a noise. They become flavorful and bright shining. There's a German pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was executed by the Nazis during World War II. But, but he, he once wrote this. He said, flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. In other words, you know, in our day and age, it's, it's so easy for us to isolate ourselves from one another. It's so easy to, to, I mean, the church has done a good job of saying, hey, it's dangerous out there, so let's do things right in here. Let's protect this little space. And it's, it's becoming less so about this community that's being a bubble to the outside world. Our individual lives are becoming a bubble to the outside world. We're shutting ourselves off from the people around us. We're, we're, we're using the, the advancement of technology to feel like we're reaching farther, but we're actually, actually building thinner and, 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 and less deep relationships with other people. See, our purpose as children of God is not to be isolated in individuals. It's to shine bright the light and life of Christ, to magnify him. And this is important so that the world may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's not so that they see Dan's good works. It's not say, hey, Dan, what a nice guy you are. That's not God's purpose for me. So that the world might come to know my heavenly Father as I've come to know him. Our active lives of faith are worship. 
So when the world sees this distinctive people of God, it, it, it results not in a better society, but an expanding community of followers of Jesus who are glorifying him and living for him. So again, let me, let me say this. When, when I, what I long for us to understand is that the, the aim of a life of worship is not to make this world better. Don't get me wrong. I care about what's going on in this world, as we all should. But our, we, we kind of put the cart ahead of the horse when we say we want to be an, a good influence on our community. First and foremost, we want our community to know Christ. And in knowing Christ, this world will be a better place because we are praying, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Church, a life of worship is a life lived on purpose and specifically for God's purposes. It's a life where that we might be his salt on the earth, that we might be a light for the nations, that we might be opening the eyes that are blind and bringing out the prisoners who are sitting in the darkness of their own soul, the darkness of their own prisons. And before I close our time this morning in Matthew, I thought it might be helpful to just share two two examples that I've seen, that I've witnessed in my life of a life of worship well-lived and on purpose. The first example is, is the reason I stand before you today, the, the reason I'm here. My, my grandmother worked as a secretary at uh, Bunnell High School for many years. She raised four kids, mainly on her own because she was widowed twice. She didn't accomplish much in, this, in the, the eyes of this world. She wasn't a business owner. She wasn't very rich. But she was humble, and she was a loving person who loved others well, and most importantly, loved God well. She would deliver flowers to people who, who moved into her community. She brought meals to people when they needed it. She, she was an excellent friend. She was an outstanding grandmother, and she was a wonderful sister in Christ. Now, if you knew my grandmother, you knew how she loved you. It was obvious. She loved you well, but she always made sure that it was known, not just in word, but also in deed. But I didn't really know the, the reach of her influence for Christ until she passed away. At, at her funeral, person after person shared stories of how she loved them well and how she, uh, she, she, God used her to change the trajectory of their life because of that love. She didn't necessarily tell people what to do or how badly they had messed up their lives. She was present to people. She listened to them. She was gracious and compassionate. She was merciful and forgiving. She loved well out of the abundance of love that God was pouring into her. She was a salty Christian. She was faithful to Jesus. And here's the thing. Her faith was palpable. You could, you could see it. You could touch it. You could smell it. Her faith was palpable. And so it was at her memorial service that I decided this, this was the kind of life I wanted to have. I didn't want to reach the end of my life and feel like it was meaningless, like that all that I, all that I had lived for was just going to go away when I, when I died. I wanted to know that after I had gone home to be with the Lord, that my legacy would live on through, through the Christ-likeness that I desired to live in this world. I didn't want the world to remember the words I said, but the, the character of Christ that I hope to embody. 
That's what my grandmother gave me. That's the gift she gave me in, in, in loving me and sharing her life with me. Her faith was palpable. The second example I want to share with you all this morning is, is one that many of us have personally experienced uh, here at Trinity. And this past week, we had the, the privilege of celebrating the life and faith of Betty Carl, who went home to be with the Lord. And in celebrating her life, we had a chance to hear more about who she was and what she believed and how she lived her life. For those of you who knew Betty, she was a well-seasoned worshiper. She used to tell me when she came into church on Sunday morning, she goes, Pastor Dan, God woke me up with a song today. And she would tell me what song that was. There so many different times. It was, the song was, was so appropriate for what God was doing in my heart and my life that week. There was not a corner of Betty's life that was not seasoned by the life of Jesus. During the service, her son-in-law did an excellent job painting the, a portrait of Betty's life and her faith and, and he used one word in particular that just stood out to me. That just made it so clear to me in describing Betty's faith. The word he used was effervescent. What a good word that is, right? See, Betty's faith in Jesus and love for others bubbled out of her life like bubbles coming off an Alka-Seltzer tablet placed in water, right? You ever seen that? You ever put a glass of water, you put an Alka-Seltzer tablet in that, it just immediately starts bubbling and, and expanding and filling the space that it was put in. That's what Betty's life was. She, she, she began to bubble the love and grace and mercy of God into the space that God had put her in. She sent people postcards, spent hours on the phone listening to others, visiting people in their homes, brought them flowers or food. She was an excellent friend and she loved others well. My kids would receive postcards whenever she would travel, telling them little things about what she did that day and what excited her, what, what kind of surprised her in the day. These little things made an impact on eternity. But see, Betty wasn't born that way. It was a Christ-like character that Jesus formed in her through the adversity of life and led to a life of faithfulness. Betty worshipped Jesus, and she became more and more like Jesus as a result. She, she became what she ate, right? Those effervescent bubbles coming off of her life broke over our lives. Betty gave us Jesus. So church, the, the invitation to worship is so much more than an invitation to sing or read scripture or go to church on Sunday morning. It's an invitation to a lifestyle where Jesus makes us salty and gives us the gift of shining that light and life and love of God into our dark world. So church, let's be salty. Let's be a community of salt. And let's not just be a pile of salt all in one place. Let's let God kind of sprinkle us out to season our community with the love and the character of God. Let's be salty and let's shine bright. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you that, um, that you give us meaning. You give us purpose. And that meaning and purpose comes not in our own striving, our own success or achieving, but as a gift not that we receive once, but that we receive every day through your Holy Spirit working in us as we make you the object of our affection, our, our most precious and treasured desire. 
Lord, if, if, if it's true that we become what we eat, we want to become what we worship, and we want to declare that it's you, God, that we worship through Jesus Christ. Lord, we, I think if my grandmother or Betty were standing here today, they would say that, that a life of faith, a life of worship is anything but easy. And so, Lord, give us the strength to be a people of faithfulness, uh, faithfulness to God. Lord, we, we pray that as, as we cling to you, we trust that, that, that the world will see you and will give glory to you. That's the life of worship we want to emulate. That's the kingdom we want to come, your kingdom. May we be that kind of Christ-centered, worshiping community. So have your way in us, Lord. Have your way in us. Transform us. Make us salty. Make us bright, shining Christians. And we will glorify you. And more than anything, Lord, we pray that the world around us would also glorify you to give glory to our Father in heaven. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we reflect on those words of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and how that's supposed to play out in the world, this final song really is a prayer. So we'd invite you to stand and continue praying with us.
Thank you for joining us for worship this morning uh, in person, both online and here in the room. It's a joy to worship the Lord with you. Church, we uh, are, there are a few things coming up, and I want to let you know we continue to seek opportunities to fellowship together. We know that that's important for us as a people of God to find ways to gather. So, uh, you know, as, as COVID goes, we're, we're still aiming for gathering together in the month of February in different ways coffee hour or brunch together, that's our desire. So keep your eyes on your uh, email and on the website for details to come as to moving forward with that. Also want to let you know February 27th is our annual meeting. Members, uh, it's very important you be there. We want to know, we want to hear together where God is, is putting on our hearts to, to move in the next year. Uh, if you have been a guest with us, we invite you to join us as well to hear that for yourself and to see what the people of God do when they come together for an annual meeting. Uh, we'll, we'll have uh, details on the website and email coming out more in, in the days and weeks to come. But church, as we close our time, I want to encourage you. We are salt and light. Not, not we could be. We have the light of Christ in us. So let that be our focus as we go out. Let me close with this benediction, which is our passage. Church, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and give light to all in the house. In the same way, church, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen. Go in peace.